Nothing like a good Mick Avery snare drum hit to start off the podcast this week. It's Michael Shelley, and my guest is Andrew Sandoval, who is the uh, man who put together this new reissue of The Kinks Are the Village Green Preservation Society, and we'll talk to him about what it goes into putting a record together like that, and about the record itself, what it means for all of us, for the world, for history. Don't forget, upcoming guests are always listed at wfmu.org slash Michael. I've got author Dorothy Carvello, who wrote a book called Anything for a Hit. She was the first female A&R executive at Atlantic Records, and she was treated terribly. Some things never change. Uh, really off-the-wall stories here. I'm looking forward to talking to her. Also, uh, Carl Giamarese of the Buckinghams. You may know their number one hit song, Kind of a Drag. He's also joining us. Uh, one last reminder, we are in the middle of our fun drive. Hopefully it'll be over at the end of October, and hopefully you will have pledged by then. Every show, I read thank yous to everyone who's pledged in the previous week. Hopefully add your name to the list. That's it. Here it is, folks. Uh, Andrew Sandoval on The Kinks and this 50th reissue. Thanks. Okay, there is picture book from the Kinks, of course, from the Village Green Preservation Society, or as it is known officially, the Kinks are the Village Green Preservation Society. I guess I knew that the album was sometimes referred to that, but I wasn't 100% sure uh, that was the exact name of the album. And of course, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of this record, and a deluxe edition is being released on the 26th. It's just a few days from now. And to talk to us about it, Andrew Sandoval joins us. Andrew, good morning. How are you? Fine, thanks, Michael. Uh, good to speak to you. Yes, uh, some folks might know you as the host of Come to the Sunshine, which airs Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the WFMU Rock and Soul Ichiban stream. But you're also a busy guy in the reissuing great rock and roll music field. And there's sort of an, it's just how lucky you are. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> I suppose so. Um, you know, it's something I really love. It's something I've done for 29 years since I was literally a teenager. So. I've I've been in this business more or less all of my adult life. That's incredible. So this record came out uh, at the end of 1968, and one of the things I learned reading the liner notes was that Ray Davies was 24 years old, which of course makes sense, but when you see it in print, you think, oh my God, that guy was so young. Was he involved in putting this whole thing together? Yes, Ray is very involved with everything to do with the kinks. Not only does he own all of their repertoire from... 1971 on, that starts with the Muswell Hillbillies record. But with the 60s music, he, he uh, the 60s masters, he basically has approval over everything. So this was a multi-year process. 14 years ago, I started on this road with him when we did the three-CD version of Village Green for uh, Sanctuary Records in 2004. And from that time, tried to find other tapes and masters and demos and all sorts of other things to put onto this set, which... The album is my favorite album of all time by any artist, so it was not just a labor of love, but something that I felt just had to be done. This record had to be canonized in this way. I'm always interested where you know a young teenager hears of a record like this. It may not have even been in print when you were a teenager in the United States. Who turned you on to this record originally? Well, I'll tell you, I bought this book 
about the Kinks by John Savage that came out around 1984. I got it a few years later. I didn't get it when it first came out. I'd seen the Kinks in concert. My brother took me to see them starting in 1983, and we'd go successfully each year to try and see them because he loved their more current music and got me into it. And then I got very, very interested in their past and their 60s music, and that's what I stuck to for the first part of my fandom with them. I read about this album, and I just knew from the description in the book that this was the album for me. I, I just I would love it. And then I had heard various songs like Animal Farm and Last of the Steam Power Trains on compilation cassettes that were available at the local drugstore. They were like cheapy cassettes <laughs> you get for 3 or $4. And eventually I got this album called Golden Hour of the Kings, and that had a few of the songs. And it drove me to want to have this album, but as you say, it was out of print, my local record store was the Rhino Record Store. They didn't have it. Uh, they, they had nothing on it. And eventually, I found out that there was a store in San Diego, California, that had the album, and it was $18. And my father and I went on a trip to San Diego, and I got the record. To put it in perspective, we drove two hours, and I got this record, and then we drove back. I mean, not just for the record, to be together, but... This was the thing, and when I put on the record, I just fell in love with it, and I just played it and played it and played it, and I have never stopped since that day when I was 15. Uh, I'm glad your dad was was a good guy, was game. That is so uh, such a wonderful story. Not every dad would have done that, I think. I mean, my dad certainly wouldn't have done that. This record is mentioned often as a lot of people's favorite record of all time, you know, in the same way that Sgt. Pepper or Pet Sounds is talked about now it's amazing that a record like this was was out of print it's hard to believe that that that's where the record industry was that people didn't care about stuff like this only 20 years on but uh, i guess things things moved on can you tell me in doing all this research what was going on in the world when they were making this record and how it affected the making of this record sure well in the kinks world they come off of two singles one was wonder boy there was a real chart sort of miss for them. It still was top 40, but they'd gone on a package tour to promote it, and the package tour was kind of old hat for a progressive 1968 British music scene. And then they put out a single called Days, which only made it to number 12, and many people consider Days to be one of Ray Davies' greatest songs. So that's where they're at. In the meantime, in society in Britain, there is this nationalist sort of movement called We're Backing Britain, where people are saying, we don't want any foreigners in the country. We want Britain to be Britain as it used to be. And some of the themes in Village Green harken back to this sort of thought of a place that is changed so much in modern society. And, and that's what you're still dealing with in 2018, 50 years later, I think, especially with Brexit and everything else. It's very, very in keeping with the times that people are, are confused by the changes in society. And certainly Ray made an album where he could put on the record, and every time he put on the record, he could get back to the place that he wanted to go, this mythical place, the Village Green. And so it was a two-year journey from the time he recorded Village Green, the one of the songs in 1966, to the time he released the album in 68. People always talk about how Ray has to kind of recorded his generation. What was, you know, the, the generation gap and sort of a great spokesman for writing these great little songs that tell the stories of, of what's going on. But I always see it just a little bit differently and feel free to totally disagree with me. But I always see that 
what makes his point of view so interesting is that he has some nostalgia, some fondness, some sympathy for the people that don't want things to change. He also sort of loves that idea of the old Britain, but also is definitely part of the of of everything changing at the same time. Ray is an observer of culture and people. And if you're with him today, and probably if I was with him in 1968, he would be the same, looking at people, studying people, picking up on small things. But he's really an outsider. I mean, his thing is not really, I'm part of the crowd. It's, so it's interesting that people feel that he's some sort of spokesman. But it's more that he feels that he's he's got some distance from everybody he he doesn't really fit in and i think that that's what speaks to so many people why it's so many people's favorite record so he has just such a unique perspective that's so different from a lennon mccartney or a townsend or you know uh jagger richards or any anybody else writing at the time there's they people t- can touch on it for a moment but where ray goes he goes deep you know so, so this is your favorite record of all time, and you I'm sure you've heard you know that you should be careful when you're meeting your idols because sometimes they're <laughs> they're not they're the opposite of larger than life or they have they just turns out that they're people with problems and that must be something that you encounter all the time working in this field doing reissues uh, not necessarily Ray but is it, is that true that you sometimes you'll meet someone and you'll just wish you hadn't met them in a way? Well, I've never wished I hadn't met anybody, but it's 100% true that they're just people. And, you know, you have to really separate the art from the artist. I mean, I wouldn't let these people, meaning the artists who made some of my favorite music, you know, watch my cats or, you know, water my houseplants. That's not what their job is. I mean, they make art and they have their own lives. And also, I think the misnomer that people have is, or or misunderstanding they have is, well, I relate to them so well in, in their art and their music. We must be great friends. You know, I'd love to sit down and have a cup of tea or a drink with this guy and hang out. And it's usually just not the case. You may you may connect on one level, but not on another. So it's important, especially in a professional way, to to uh, to keep some distance and, and be an observer just like Ray is. Yeah. So when the record came out, what was the initial reaction from the press, from fans? There was pretty much no reaction. Uh, there were good reviews in the British press. Uh, the record was delayed till January of 1969 in the U.S., where it got a re- it got an issue. But th- seemingly, the only people who picked up on it were the band The Turtles, who lauded it and thought Ray was a genius and hired him to produce yeah. their next album, Turtle Soup, which is pretty much the only album he produced other than The Kinks in the 60s. So that was the reaction. It was it was very underground and practically non-existent. It took decades for people to recognize the album or even listen to it. Yeah. Uh, people say uh, often when a reissue comes out, a big deal is made over the remastering without getting too crazily detailed. Explain to folks who have no idea what that means. What does it mean and why is it such a good thing? Well, remastering is basically a process that everything has to go through in order to digitize it. And some people say, well, I don't want it digitized. I just want vinyl. But oftentimes... Your vinyl these days is not cut off of analog masters. I can tell you with the Village Green Preservation Society, we had the original two-track stereo masters for the LP, and we had a production master for the mono, and then we found some other tapes within the Kinks archive for the mono. And then for the other discs uh, on the box set, disc three in particular has a lot of things from sessions that are mixed from the original four-track tapes. The album was made on four-track, 
and Ray's process was to record basic tracks on four track and then bounce down sometimes two or three times just on four track. They never made it to eight track, which was a prevalent format at this time. Did they bounce to another uh, machine or they they bounce within the machine? They bounced to a second machine. So there are speed issues between the two. So we resynced some of these multi-tracks where we had the multiple stages so we could do wider remixes for disc three. But keep in mind that the original discs, uh, mono and stereo, all of the original mixes have not been touched. They've only been compared to the original LPs to make sure that they have the same integrity and sound as good or better. Gotcha. Uh, one of the things, again, from the liner notes is that this might have been a double LP. Maybe that was Ray's idea. And that songs like Days or Mr. Songbird might have originally been part of this thing. So it's, it wasn't such a cemented, uh, you know, written, he didn't just write 15 songs and say this is the album. Yes, that's correct. It's a thematic record rather than uh, a, a concept record, I suppose. All the songs fit into a theme rather than a strict storyline like a Tommy or something like that. The The thing about those other songs is that, yes, Days and Mr. Songbird were on the original version of the record that was released in some territories that Ray quickly withdrew because he wanted to record more songs. I mean, literally, he withdrew a record in September, and during October... He recorded new songs, including Last of the Steam Power Trains and a, and a few others, and then added overdubs to a few things, and then re-released the record, basically, in general release in uh, November of 68. So Ray wanted to do a double record, but Pi Records, which was pretty much uh, known as a kind of a, a budget-type label, put out lots of budget compilations. That was their bread and butter. They didn't want to release a double album, and it would have been interesting because at the same time, the White Album by the Beatles had just come out, so or was just about to come out, and, and the two may have been compared, but they're so different. A lot of the bonus tracks, there are a ton of bonus tracks on the uh, the two-disc set. Uh, there's a bunch of versions of this uh, of this release, uh, but the two-disc set has a whole stereo version and a mono version, and then, I don't know, maybe over 20 bonus tracks, uh, some which have been released before, but some that haven't. I think that's kind of the exciting thing always to hear stuff that's never come out before. I think there's four uh, tracks from 1973 that sound uh, fantastic. Let me ask you about just mono versus stereo. How, you know, on this record, where do you stand? I mean, is one, do you, do you think, the definitive? No, I, you know, but when I heard the, <laughs> when I first got the mono record, the first one I got when I was 15 years old was stereo. And then one day in the used bin, I found a mono copy of this album, and it just blew me away. The drums on Do You Remember Walter were just so punchy, and it was so much of a different listening experience. It sounded so much more cohesive. The mixes, which in stereo had weird things like the vocals off to one side, or, you know, it just sounded kind of like, oh, you know, this is a fantastic record, but from an engineering standpoint, you know, there's certain little things that you wish were different. With the mono, it, it sounds like a complete thought. So, I love them both, and I think for a lot of people, they don't want to hear the thing in only mono, they want to hear the stereo, so you don't have to choose between the two. They're both there in the regular edition and in the in the big edition, too. You get all kinds of extra remixes and things. Yeah, I was listening to it just this morning and, you know, kind of going back and forth between the stereo and the mono, and uh, it's, it, they both have their, their merits, for sure. I noticed that you take a compiled by credit on this. Clearly, this is ye literally years, almost a decade, right, working on this one thing. Uh, I find that 
but I love that credit. I I'm not a big fan of when someone takes a produ- you know a produced by credit because I find it, you know right. it's like it's like reissuing a DVD of an Alfred Hitchcock movie and saying this DVD was directed by somebody else. Like to word <laughs> you know there's already a producer of the record. You know what I mean? But I, I understand it's not so cut and dried. How do you what do you think about that? Ray Davies is the producer of this album. And he's the he's the person who brought it to life, and that was my thought throughout the entire project. I just kept sort of saying it's, it's too long for a mantra, but I kept saying this is Ray's album. I'm not I, I'm not the producer of this album. This is Ray's album, and he brought this to life. It brought me a lot of joy in my life. And as much as I'm going to push my agenda of trying to get all this stuff out there to the world so they can hear it too, this is really his call. And we got down to the point where he allowed pretty much everything I wanted on the record, but with a lot of personal deep thought. And, and in the uh, in the big box, there are some demos that he put on, which are his home sketches of the songs. And that took a lot out of him. Uh, he wrote about those in the in the box set, and basically why he didn't want certain songs out, and why it was tough for him to listen to. It took him back to his house and his kids. His, children. He'd written pictures in the sand for his daughter, never meant it for anybody to ever hear it other than his daughter. I mean, when you really get into it, you, you stop being a fan, you realize this is a human and this is a very real thing that he's gone through. And he also said he, you know, he never wanted to sing the lyrics to the songs to the other kings to the last minute because it was so deep inside him. It was so painful to express some of these feelings to people. He wanted to have a direct communication with his audience, not even his band, but he just wanted to express these things to his listeners. How interesting. There is a super deluxe box set, that's what it's called, uh, 174 tracks. I think the two-CD version is 49 tracks. There's, it's out on LP, it's out on, I believe, single CD also. Uh, 174 tracks. What else is, just to tease everyone quickly, what else is in the super deluxe box? Well, there is this demo montage that Ray put together of his home demos. There are a number of studio outtakes of them chattering and uh, backing tracks of things. There's a previously totally unheard, unbootlegged, never-before-discovered song called Egg Stained Pajamas, which is complete production, but it doesn't have a vocal, and Ray actually considered putting on the vocal because he remembered it quite well, but he didn't get around to completing it for this. And there's also his attempt to revisit the Village Green five years after the release in 1973, he really couldn't let go of the album and started re-recording songs from the album in new arrangements and intended to produce a stage show around it. But things changed in his life, in his personal life. He got divorced and other things happened, and Village Green Preservation Society became preservation and a much different story. So we have his abandoned recordings from that period. And then it ends with his revisitation of the Village Green themes, for his choir uh, album, The Choral Collection. And it shows you in where in his mind he took those songs. They're bigger, they're more produced, they're more expansive, they're more like a like Broadway in, in, in some respects. But it shows, you know, if he had had an orchestra and a choir and all these other things in 1968, you know, or beyond where he would have taken the songs, they're still living in his mind. And this is still an ongoing thing for him. I don't think he's ever going to let go of the village green. 
How interesting. Okay, let's hear the uh, the preservation version of the title track from the record. It, like you said, it's uh, a, t- a new arrangement, much slower, very different, and it'll be sort of a shock, I think, to some folks who are, because you're so used to hearing this song a certain way. It's very satisfying, but it's a little bit jarring to hear this version. Yes. Andrew Sandoval, your website, Come to the Sunshine, for folks who want information about your lovely radio show, which airs Monday 6 to 8 on the Rock and Soul Ichiban stream right here in WFMU land. Uh, thanks so much. I wish you the best of luck with this. It's uh, clearly a labor of love, and it's a fantastic record and definitely a, a real mood piece. And if uh, folks aren't familiar with it, uh, check it out or revisit it 50 years later. Hard to believe. Uh, let's hear the title track. Andrew, thanks so much. Thank you, and as the back of the album says, you are our friends for listening. We are the Village Green Preservation Society God save Drury Lane for the villa and variety We are the Covent Garden Appreciation Society God save Music Hall And all the different varieties Preserving the old ways From being abused Protecting the new ways For me and for you What more can we do? Society. God save Mrs. Muffs and good old Mother Riley. We are the office block, persecution affinity. 